not only was I not planned, I realized getting up into life, but I wasn't wanted. Now, I wasn't beaten and, you know, bruised and starved and all that kind of stuff. It wasn't that kind of abuse. It was just... Just neglect. Neglected. I was just neglected. Most every conversation was directed toward my brother, <clears throat> who's a very gifted pianist, by the way. Could have been a concert pianist, easily. Uh, or my sister. Uh, I cannot remember a half dozen conversations with me ever growing up. Well, after a while, you get the picture that. Uh, You're I'm, invisible. Yeah, I'm, I'm here, but I, I don't know why. You're listening to the Reframing Ministries podcast, providing strength for today and hope for tomorrow for caregivers and their families. Connect with Colleen and other caregivers on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, where you can find a community of people who get it and explore all our resources. Now, here's Colleen. I have one of the most amazing opportunities of my life, and that is to talk with my dad and have a very open conversation that probably not many have ever, ever heard about. You recently wrote the book on hope. I did. Yes. yes. And I know for sure there is there are people watching or listening who are contemplating suicide, who mm. are lonely, who are on their last thread, and they don't know where to turn. Yeah. So part of this is to just normalize all of us yeah. in the struggles and in the triumphs of life. You gave a talk recently at the board meeting that you really shared your heart and your history. And I want you just to start with that because not many people know where you came from and your history. Sure. Well, uh, in October of 2022, I turned 88, and it was a bit of a milestone. When you're that old, you have to be ready for some really insulting birthday cards, <laughs> you know. One of my favorites is I was walking out in a forest of massive redwood trees, a towering, beautiful redwoods, and and it was it was just magnificent. And I paused and I thought of you. And this is on the front of the car. And I'm thinking, oh, my. <laughs> and I open the card. It says, thank you for planting them. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. So you got to be ready for all the kinds of cards like that. But anyway, uh, I think I was also pensive about the birthday because for the first time I arrived at it at a birthday with no other living family members. Mm. And, you know, when you're 88, you people think, well, why do you need anybody else? Well, we always need yeah. other people, especially significant others. And, uh, <clears throat> I buried my mother years ago, then eight, nine years later, my father, and then uh, more recently, my sister, as you recall, Aunt Lucy, uh, was uh, finally succumbed in, to, to death in 20. And, and then, would you believe, a, a year after that, my dear mentor, Bob Newkirk, whom I walked with and loved and needed during my year and more on Okinawa when I was away from Cynthia and away from home. And Bob was there serving the navigators. 
And, uh, you know, you think people like that are just going to live forever. Right, well, right. He almost did. He, he was in his mid-90s. And I, I, I did, by the way, all of those eulogies. And then... During COVID. Part of that. Yeah, was. yeah, it was. And then 10... Uh, actually, one month later, to the day, my older brother died. Uh and as you know, I'm from a family of three children. I'm the youngest and older brother. My mom and dad married when they were when it was uh, 1930, and uh, ten months later they had my brother, and uh, and then 13 months later they had my sister. Oh my goodness! And uh, that was a pretty big handful for my mom, who was. Not really crazy about little children, and and uh, that's a tough assignment anyway. And then I, uh, I wasn't planned. I was, in fact, they said to me, "You were a mistake." I I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> Early on, I didn't know. And anyway, uh, to to be blunt about it, uh, ours was a family of favorites. And it, it was known openly within the family. My mother clearly adored my, my brother, who, by the way, was brilliant and very gifted, uh, went to Rice <clears throat> when he graduated from high school and, and uh, won awards in high school in science and all of that and made his own radio and was a ham operator and all that stuff. And my sister, Miss Personality, you know, she was clearly my father's favorite. And he just loved uh, Lucy. But not only was I not planned, and, and this is not said in any way to throw rocks at my folks and whatever, but this is the truth. Mm -hmm. I, I really realized uh, they don't know me. They they. Uh, not only was I not planned, I realized getting up into life that I wasn't wanted. Now, I wasn't beaten and, you know, bruised and starved and all that kind of stuff. It wasn't that kind of abuse. It was just... It's neglect. Neglected. I was just neglected. Most every conversation was directed toward my brother, <clears throat> who's a very gifted pianist, by the way. Could have been a concert pianist, easily. Uh, or my sister. Uh, I cannot remember a half dozen conversations with me ever growing up. Well, after a while, you get the picture that... Uh, well, You're invisible. Yeah, I'm, I'm here, but I, I don't know why. Mm. I, I, I don't know. My maternal grandfather, L.O. Lundy, was uh, close, and uh, yet he's living down in El Campo, which is 50, 60 miles out of Houston, maybe 75. And and uh, so we would only be there in holiday season, and he had a bay cottage where we would go for vacation. Those were always great times with my granddad, but as my brother and sister grew up, they they were everything in school. I mean, they just set records and scored and whatever. And they, my sister even lettered in volleyball and swimming, and she was a very good athlete and and just could do anything. She was just gifted. Birthday party. Oh my goodness! Celebration. Yeah. Uh, by the way, and I never had one of those. You never had a birthday party. Never. No, never had a cake or something like that. Isn't that funny? Uh, Cynthia was the first one to make me a birthday cake. And I thought... That makes me so sad. Well... And I know it was your experience. And, it, it, and you're it, not... It was. Even. And, you know, I didn't I sit around going, oh, this, this is terrible. I, I just... You were a After a while, you adapt to that. Yeah. And you realize they... They don't know me. Well, uh, furthermore, I had this big problem with stuttering. 
Well, no wonder. And when you're in middle school, yeah, it may have been caused by a lot of that. But in middle school, when you have one button button wrong, you feel right. like a joke. And all the kids tease you. And when, when you stutter, you can only imagine. And, uh, and they didn't, didn't notice that. Or they didn't? No. They just, you know, speak up, son. That's the best they could do. And, and when you have an impediment of speech and all that, it's kind of hard to live with. So I get into high school, and, and there's a high school drama teacher named Dick Neme. And Richard Neme singled me out and said, I want you in my debate class and in my drama class. And I go, <laughs> you, you're talking to me? Yeah. Are you talking to, to oh. me? He said, yeah, you've really got it. Got it? Said, yeah, you've, you've got what it takes. By your senior year, you'll have the lead in our play. How did you even take that in? Well, I couldn't. I, I couldn't. It was beyond my ability to. First of all, that he would talk to me. Mm. Well, he said, yeah, I'll teach you to speak this summer. So that summer, he taught me how to speak. Nice contribution, huh? Who would have known? I loved him. Loved him so deeply. He was the first who really loved care. You. He, he really cared. He cared. Every time. Well, I and then I, I'm, I'm in plays and, uh, and I'm not shuddering. <laughs> that had to be amazing. Yeah, it was. Of course, my folks never went to any of the plays. And By the way, I had a great music teacher in high school, Eugene Seastrand, who was our high school music band teacher, artist. And uh, his love for music rubbed off, and I picked up. I used my uncle's uh, clarinet that he no longer played, and I kind of taught myself the reed instruments, uh, saxophone and flute and piccolo and Oboe was a really delightful instrument. You taught yourself to play all those instruments. Yeah, I did. And uh, finally, played in the Houston Youth Symphony. And the or the symphony tuned off of my oboe. I loved that. So you were uh, first chair. I, I was. And, and, uh, and it's hard for you to even admit that. <laughs> <laughs> but you were. Yeah. That's wonderful. And, and, and uh, they never came to the symphony that we played. And I was an orchestra conductor. But the toughest moment was when I made drum major yeah. in high school, senior year. Only seniors could be drum major. And uh, the band voted me as drum major. And I came home with a uniform, the big plume mm -hmm. hat. I had it in my hand. And my mother looked at it and said, don't be so proud. Hang that in your closet. Okay. So... I never again dressed in my uniform at home. I always took it to school and dressed at school before the games or parades or whatever. Did those words ring in your ears when you would put the uniform on? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> the the contrast with my brother and sister was, was so stark that you wouldn't believe it, you know. Well, you mentioned the instruments, and I just noticed every time you've talked about Orville and Lucy, yeah. you mention so many of their accomplishments. Oh, oh he they was were, brilliant. He was this. They were. They, and honestly, they, it, sure. wasn't, it wasn't a joke. They were really good. But he played piano, and I'm sure they were present at his oh, recitals. Oh, we went to every recital. So every you sat one. through all the recitals. Every volleyball game. Every swim meet, yeah, we did. And I got to where I didn't even mention, you know. And then I did have the lead in the senior play. Yeah. Yeah, George Washington Slept Here was the play. I played the part that Jack Benny played in the in the stage play on Broadway. And uh, Dick Neamey sat in the middle, up in the balcony, and was the first on his feet to applaud. Oh, gosh. When we, when we finished and I wanted ultimately to uh, to go into theater. I, I really did, uh, but.
But my folks said to me, you, you, you can't do that. University of Houston had a great drama department. We could have, I could have gone there, but my dad said, you need to, uh, you need to become an apprentice in a machine shop. Okay. Uh, my sister was going to Baylor, Merhart and Baylor College, and they were paying her way to that. And my brother's going to Rice. They both get a car to do that. And I'm an apprentice at a kind of a dingy machine shop. Paying rent to live at home. Yeah, I was at home and and uh, bought my first car from my apprentice salary, which was tiny. Uh, you know, I'm I'm trying not to be ugly about this, but uh, you get to where you you don't care. You adapt. You have to. That's kind of a coping mechanism, I guess, because uh, I realize this is an uphill climb. If I'm going to try to wedge into in between them, you know, hey, and I wasn't ever any much to shout about, and though I certainly was gifted in in areas, but they never knew it. And so, funny thing, when I buried my dad, especially, I remember it was like burying a stranger. I didn't know him. We were like ships in the night. Anyway, I was a grown man with kids at that time. But uh, And so after I, and I, I meet Cynthia, and she's the most wonderful, the most wonderful individual I'd ever met. Who was also dating somebody, maybe. <laughs> anyway, That's we were young, story. really young. I was I was a year out of high school, and she was still in high school. And uh, her dad made me promise I'd let her graduate from high school before <laughs> we married. And, of course, I did. And, and uh, then we married in mm. 1955. She was 18. I was 20. Mm. Uh, that had to be They, they never accepted Cynthia, you know. They never really accepted Orville's wife. My brother's name is Orville, and um, she's a lovely lady. Irma Jean Inslee was her name. She was Lucy's roommate, and Lucy introduced her to my brother and said she's she's the type that you'd really enjoy. She and was boy, wonderful. did he ever! And they had a wonderful marriage. She died a little bit before Orville did. Anyway. Uh, we were never comfortable with my folks because, you know, that, that distance. Well, when I finished my apprenticeship, in those days you had an obligation with the military, and and I chose I didn't want to be in the military forever, and I, I certainly wanted to be in a good outfit and one that I could be proud of and one maybe learn who I am. Mm. Seriously. And... Uh, so I'm in the I'm in the Marine Corps, and I remember being on the rifle range. Uh, it was called Camp Matthews, and we're there shooting and learning about how to handle a heavy weapon. And the drill instructor yelled over and said to me, "Come here!" And I walked over, and he said, "Stand still!" And he pinned a red band on my arm, which was a mark of the. It's called a right guide, and that makes you the leader of the platoon. He said, you're the, you're the best leader in the outfit, and I get out there and get those guys in shape. I paused because he linked me to the word leader. I never knew I was a leader until that moment. And drill instructors, yeah, they're not whatever, <laughs> whatever else they're not, they can spot yeah. who leaders are and who the who the you know the rebels are and where the problems are, whatever. And and boy, when he pinned that band on me, and I had a chance to kind of take charge and lead the outfit, it was it was it was an amazing feeling, you know. So I uh, I earned promotion in the Corps, and, and as time passed, uh, while I'm getting my orders cut, 
my first tour of duty was San Francisco. Well, that's, that's awfully good. Mm-hmm. No one else going to San Francisco. The rest of the guys were going to go to, you know, 29 Palms or or some tough station or infantry maybe in, in some desert area. And I'm, I'm going to San Francisco. So Cynthia and I go to San Francisco and we're there four months and I get a speed letter from... Dwight Eisenhower, the president, that says uh, you're being you're being sent to Okinawa, and you'd been married two years. Two years, yeah, and I just couldn't believe it. I'm sitting on a road in San Francisco, waiting for Cynthia to go off work, and right in front of me is the bay, San Francisco yeah. Bay, and Alcatraz. Yeah. And I look out and I think this is like a prison sentence. Because Marines couldn't take their wives overseas. Well, I just cried. She and I both cried ourselves to sleep that night. And I said, honey, we're going we're gonna to make this. I don't know how. We're gonna make but I was very disappointed in God. How could he let this happen, you know? But little did I realize <laughs> Little did I realize that. Uh, but at the time, you were having the the most delightful time of your life. Oh, it was. Ever. It was like a second honeymoon. Yeah. Oh yeah. San Francisco, whatever else back then was like a was like a a fairyland. You know, it was just beautiful. It was beautiful. Yeah, it was. And so then you're now told, that gets jerked out from under me. And for how long do you have to go? I'm overseas for like sixteen months. And she can't be with me, and I never heard her voice because phone calls were too expensive. But I meet Bob Newkirk with the Navigators. What did you? I got to stop for a second. What did you do with the frustration and and anger? You just mentioned it was disillusioning with God. Oh, I was I was really bitter. Yeah, I, I was really, uh, you know. What kind of God is this that would yeah. allow this to happen? You know. Well, my brother had given me a book, Through Gates of Splendor, which I read on the ship and then I read again when I was overseas. This changed my life. Uh, five men that gave their lives to reach the Alka Indian. And I thought if they would do this and those wives could go on without their husbands. Mm. And they're dead. They were murdered, martyred. I can do this. Of course, Bob Newkirk built into my life, and I got into a scripture memory program. And then I began to lead. We would often do it on a flatbed truck. We'd pull a flatbed up, and a crowd would gather, as you often do in a place like that. And it was at a street meeting, and he'd say, "You, you can sing." and I want you to sing and preach. I want you to do the whole thing. And I did. And and uh, he would say to me when we're going back to base, you're really a natural. You know that. And I go, what does that mean? He goes, you got it. Just like Dick Nemi had said. You don't even know what. I, I don't know what it is. Yeah. Because it hadn't worked for me very well up until then. Right. I need to hurry this along. And so I I um, realized I need to be in ministry. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is I'm in the infantry out in the middle of the field, and I hear music in the background, Okinawa, shortly after I get there. And I say to my buddy next to me in the foxhole, what's that music? And he goes, it's the band. It's the third division band. I said, we have a band. He said, yeah, sure. I thought, well, I can, I can play band instruments, you know, and I'll audition. Get out of this fox. Get out of the, get out <laughs> exactly. of the infantry. Exactly. And, and, uh, that afternoon we had a little Liberty and I went in and I met Captain Birch and, and, uh, I told him that I'd like to, I'd like to uh, audition for the band. He looks at me like, who are you? And I said, I'm really nobody. You don't know me, but uh, I can I can play. He said, what do you play? And I said, well, I, 
I'd play clarinet and saxophone and oboe and piccolo. He goes, oboe, you play oboe, it's yeah. unusual. It's a double reed instrument and it's the band tunes from it. And, and I said, yeah, I can. He said, you know anything by heart? I said, yeah, I know the, I know the, uh, the special uh, scene out of the Sequoia Overture. There's a clarinet cadenza. Sure. And you, you play it without any other instruments. And so I'd not played for five and a half years. Oh, my gosh. And I'd been in, you know, machine shop and all that. And he said, well, here's a mouthpiece and here's a reed. And I put it on. And he said, play that cadenza. So I played it. He said, can you play the Marine's hymn? And I go, yeah. So I played the Marine's hymn. He said, you sight read? I said, well, let's see. And he put music in front of me, and I sight read it. He goes, when can you transfer? And I go, you're the captain. I, I'm, I'm nobody, you know. He said, how about today? How about yes? Colleen, that changed everything. First of all, I got out of all the dirt. And second, I had a lot of liberty because when you play uh, a concert or you play the general's mess, that's the when he has a uh, mm -hmm. dinner and you call it the mess. Mm -hmm. And then you go into the evening, you get two more days off free. Well, then I'd spend with Bob Newkirk. And I'm going through my scripture memory program and digging into the scriptures and, and I'm loving it. And I'm thinking... I said to Bob one day, I think I'm going to study for the ministry. And he goes, hot dog. <laughs> now you're talking. And I go, I don't know that I can get into it. He said, you can get into it. Why do you say that? I said, well, I don't have all the credentials and all that. He said, look, you've got it. So he believed in me, like my band director. Like my yes. drama director, unlike my parents. Mm -hmm. So I had to get past the parent thing mm -hmm. and hope. We move into hope. Mm -hmm. Hope realized. There's a verse that says in Proverbs, desire realized is sweet to the soul. Mm -hmm. And it was sweet to my soul to think about. Well, I wrote Cynthia, your mom. And, of course, none of you kids were born back then. And, and I just said to her, honey, I just have to tell you, I just surrendered my life to the Lord for ministry. Oh, she was, <laughs> she went into orbit. She was so thrilled. <laughs> she was so thrilled. So I came back, mustered out in Treasure Island, and I went to, we had a little mini honeymoon, and then uh, I said to her, let's go to Dallas Seminary, and, and I'm going to, I'm going to. Uh, Give it a shot. Meet with a registrar. Yeah, but I don't have all the credentials. And I told him that when I met with Dr. Campbell. He said, well, let me give you a few tests. See if you can do the work, master's work in a, theolo in a theological seminary. So he gave me three different kinds of tests, and I, I pretty well aced them. You'd just been tutored for 18 months. Well, yeah, I had been. Exactly. That's exactly right. And he said, be sure and add verses of Scripture where it applies. And every answer, I just packed with verses. And he goes, <laughs> well, okay, Chuck, I think we'll accept you on probation. I said, I teared up. I said, Dr. Campbell, I'm so honored to have mm. you do that. They've never done that. Well, they rarely do it, and uh, and uh, I became the lawn boy. My job was mowing the grass, and it was seventy-five cents an hour. At least it paid the enormous rent of sixty-three dollars a month at our, <laughs> at our apartment, including which included all the utilities. Anyway, I, I did that, and all the time I'm mowing the grass, I'm thinking, "This is the grace of God. This is the grace of God." And I entered my first year and made straight A's. Mm. Dr. Campbell called me in. He said, you know, I'm going to monitor this to see if you can do the work. And so he looked over my grades and he, he goes, well, you're certainly doing the work, so I think I'll take you off of probation. But I want to see you at the end of your second year. So I made all A's in my second year. And I think they said the grass and the and the lawn at Dallas had never looked better. Oh, did they? Well, they I, did. Was, I remember was, you telling us some that. Some prejudice. <laughs> 
Anyway, I I began to take I, would, I took Greek my first year, and I took Greek and Hebrew my second year, from Bruce Walkie, who was fresh out of Hebrew out of uh, Harvard, and uh, did well. And uh, I love the languages, and I was doing theology and church history and all that. I am loving it. I am loving it. Cynthia's working at a bank, and I'm I'm doing. You have you're a person. Yeah. You you became. I, I remember a... sitting in class thinking, ministry is not so doesn't so much require brilliance as it requires discipline. Nobody ever told me that, but I came out of the Marine Corps, certainly had discipline. And while I didn't have all the backlog from all the, you know, prestigious schools, I had discipline. Mm -hmm. And I did the work. Mm -hmm. And I did it thoroughly. And, and I plus I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> I just loved it. Then my third year, we had Kurt, and and it, I did twenty one hours, and I I took two extra courses and had nineteen papers. Cynthia typed most of them, if not all of them. That's a back breaking year, and I aced that year. And so behind, by, behind the scenes, there were some struggles too that we've talked about. Oh yeah, yeah. With depression, exactly. And, yeah. So you're juggling the home yeah, and all of that. Yeah. She struggled with depression, and we lost a baby because we had been in an auto accident where a drunk hit us and totaled our car in Houston, and and I didn't make the seating of the seniors, which is a wonderful thing to go through as a Dallas Seminary senior. And then I was in my senior year, and of all things, Dwight Pentecost, Dr. J. Dwight Pentecost said to me one day, I was working at the church as a Christian ed director, and he said, I'd like you to become the assistant pastor at our church when you graduate. I had four offers, and this was one. We could stay right here in Dallas mm -hmm. and, and, and do that. And Cynthia is now carrying Carissa, your mm -hmm. sister. Mm -hmm. And uh, along with all the depression and all that, we, uh -huh. we had doctors that we were going to. So I said, well, I'm, I'm going to do this with Dr. Yeah. Pentecost. And I loved it. I loved him. And the support you were given. Even well, you yeah, talk about. And, and yeah, I would, I, I, I would preach at, at his church. And it would be packed. <laughs> and an elder say to me, uh, don't get your hopes up. They're here to see Pente hear Pentecost and they wind up with you. <laughs> that didn't bother me. I'd heard a lot worse than that. And I said, I know. He said, this is a borrowed popularity that you're enjoying. I said, yeah, it is. That was a good reminder. But Colleen, this is all part of the reason I have a lot of weaknesses and a lot of struggles, and you know most of them. Pride has never been one. No. And envy is not one. I envy no one. Mm -hmm. No one. I mean that. Mm -hmm. I don't care how great a guy's church is. I don't care how many awards he wins. I don't care how many degrees he has. I just think that's wonderful. And I just applaud you that. You truly do. And I, and I don't yeah. ever think, well, right. what about me? It's never about me. So let's face it. Some of the tough stuff of my childhood works in my favor as a servant leader. Right. And going through school. You know, I graduate, win four of the awards, and well, of all things, my mom and dad show up. They've never been to anything. As the most awkward moment. Here we are with our precious little Kurt, and Cynthia's carrying Carissa, and, and I'm graduating, and why are they here? Well, in high school, you left all of your awards in your locker. Yeah. Anyway, and so I, I, I didn't. Yeah. You would not think they would be there. Well, of course I didn't. And then they went home that afternoon. But uh, huh. 
we had never had help with the children from them. Just, mother would say to me, you can come, but don't, don't bring the children. And so you won't remember spending any time with them because they didn't want to have children. There's a great verse of scripture that says, Deuteronomy 8, 2. Mm -hmm. You shall remember all the way which this is the navigator verse. Mm -hmm. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God led you these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you, mm -hmm. to prove your character to see whether you would keep his commandments or not. Isn't that a great verse? Visit us at reframingministries.com for all of Colleen's interviews, articles, recommended resources, and more. While you're there, don't forget to subscribe and receive our free five-day video devotional series where Colleen provides pointers for navigating daily life and struggles. And I shared that verse with Cynthia about the time we graduated. And I said, let's just clean that together. Mm. I had no idea <laughs> what we would be doing. None. And then out of the blue, Dr. Pentecost taps me on the shoulder and says, would you stay and do this? So I was there four and a half years altogether. And then through circumstances beyond my control, I felt the need to move on, and we mm -hmm. went to New England for a couple of years. You were born mm -hmm. in New England. Then we came back, and we were in Texas for another four years mm -hmm. in Irving, a bedroom community of Dallas. Now, it, no, no big deal. No, no, no records set. No, no explosions went off. You know, no rockets and all. But that didn't bother you. Because you were, and that didn't bother you, because no, I didn't expect it. Right, right, and and so out of the blue, the day my mother died, your grandmother, maternal grandmother died, my uh, my phone rings, and it's a man named John Watson, who is an elder at the church in Fullerton, California, asking would I be interested in looking at that church, and I said no. I, my mother has just died, and he felt terrible. Sweetest man you could ever meet. I remember. And I said, John, that's okay. You had no way of knowing this. And 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 um, he he called again, <laughs> and I said, No, I'm, I'm not interested in coming. We had just built a new building and. It was full, and we were drawing students and faculty from the seminary, and it was a great ministry. We were really rolling along, and, and he said, what is it going to take to get you to at least look at us? And I said, you know, John, I'm just not, the, I'm just not your guy. I'm not a California guy. I'm, I wasn't a New England guy, and it was a free church, and you're a free church, and please. He said, well, we're not like the New England group. We're... We're in California. That's right. That's right. And I didn't. I didn't realize. Sure. Well, there was a particular ministry going on in Dallas that I wanted to attend, but to attend it, I couldn't prepare for Sunday. So I said to Cynthia, "I think I'll go to that church in California and preach. So I'll have to prepare a brand new message, and I'll be able to go to this conference here, and then do it." But I said, "I'm, I'm not looking. I'm just." She goes, "Maybe you're not looking at them, but they're going to be looking at you." She just knows. Yeah, I go, honey, come on. I'm not I'm not going. We're not going. I'm just gonna preach and I'll come back. Well, I loved it. <laughs> I went out there and I mean I mean it's 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 made for us. Well Hamp and Sue Riley. Oh Hamp and, and Sue the Watson. Riley. Yeah. And, right, right, and, and so many others. And in fact that Sunday afternoon they said, We're gonna have a little meeting in the pastor's study. Would you join with us? And I go, Yeah. I'll meet with you. I thought they want to talk about who might be willing to come. And so I walk in and, and Irv Alquist is the, mm -hmm. he's the chair of the search committee. And he said, well, we found our man. I go, that's wonderful. Uh, <laughs> do I know him? And they said, oh, yeah, very well. You know him really well. I said, that's great. Is he a Dallas Seminary? He is Dallas Seminary grad. He's a good expositor. And 
they're leading me on, you know. And I go, okay, all right. They said, it's you. And I said, it's not me. I'm not coming. <laughs> well, they go, wait a minute. How did it feel this morning when you were at church? And I said, well, I loved it. But I usually love it when I'm preaching because that's sure. one of my that's my gift. And, well, we loved it, and we'd love to have you. Would you at least pray? Well, how can you say no to that? No, right? How can no, you, I'm not going to. No, pray. I'm not going to pray. <laughs> I'm you know? giving that up. So I said, okay, but I first got to tell my wife, and they said, oh, she'll love it. So I go back. Cynthia meets me at the plane like this. She didn't want to hear what, because I <laughs> I called her and told her it's terrific. Well, anyway, long story short, in a couple of things, I wanted to fall into place, and they did, and we went to California. <laughs> All the doors opened. Uh, and you didn't try to open one of them. I didn't. In fact, I fought them. Yeah, they no wanted, to, they want to do like a radio did. ministry, and I told Al Sanders, please, no, no, I've got a full slate on it. And then I, I, I preached on, for those who hurt, a little sermon on when you go through tough times. And uh, Larry Cruzen, who was a man in our church, came up to me later, and he said, you got to put that in a book. And I go, put it in a book. What are you talking about? He said, do a book on this. And I go, I don't know how to do that. He said, we'll help you. I said, have you done a book? He goes, no. And I said, well, then I'm not going to be able to do a book. <laughs> so my secretary, Helen Peters, yes. said to me, well, I'll do the typing. I'll type it up. And then I knew a guy that did publishing, and his name was John Van Deest, mm -hmm. and he was with a little publisher called Multnomah mm -hmm. Press. And he said, we'd love to have this. I remember so many conversations a, in, around the book. table where you were saying, yeah. Cynthia, no, uh, I'm uh, not uh, doing that. So I, I, I get into a publishing ministry and I've got a radio ministry and, and, and it's working. And then I, uh, Word connects with me, Word books, yeah. you know, and I write a little book called Improving Your Serve. So it's number one on the list for two and a half years. And they said, how about another book, you know, and another book, and another book, and another book, and before long, all this opens up. Honestly, I, I, I'm not able to compute this. I remember the day that I found, I think, four gold medallion awards in the bottom drawer of your desk. The gold medallion award is for books like an Academy Award. I don't – I think they were dated – I think I found them several years later in the bottom drawer. And I brought them out and I said, Dad, why have you not – why didn't you tell us we could celebrate you? And you said, ah, oh, it's not that big of a deal. I don't know where those are now, but I will find them. <laughs> because even though it opened up, there was still in you not bitterness, not anger. You had worked through all that. There was surprise. I hope so. And awe. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've said for years I'm the most surprised person on the planet. You are. I honestly am. I, I'm surprised when people listen as I speak, that they read what I write. I, I, uh, I'm just not built to have this spirit of entitlement, which is something I just can't stand. Mm -hmm. And and I, I, I don't operate like that, mm -hmm. you know. And the publishing kept working and radio ministry worked and and yet there was still family you know there was still well, that's right carissa that's breaking right. her back and i mean the emergency room yeah. knew, knew us by name <laughs> and uh, so you had to juggle all of that well i'm at the church and my phone rings again and it's jack turpin mm. and don 
Campbell, who was the registrar back when I came to school, and he's now president. And they said, we'd like you to consider <laughs> coming to the seminary. And I said, why? And they said, we'd like you to be the next president. I said, <laughs> no, I am not the guy. I'm not the one. There's a pattern here, Dad. In fact, I said, I, I said to them, is this a joke? And one of them said, this is not a joke. I mean, back then they didn't do much laughing mm -hmm. in school. And I said, oh, well, I didn't mean to offend you, but honestly, I'm not presidential. I'm not the guy. The search committee was put together, and I kept saying no. And will you serve on the search committee? Well, yeah, sure, I'll help you find. I was on the board then. And the search committee sent out letters to all the graduates and, and all the alumni and all the friends of the seminary. And so I'm in the committee meeting when the tally comes back in and the leader of the search committee says your, your name is the top of every list <laughs> now what are you gonna do <laughs> I, i'm like uh, i was embarrassed i said like that can't be true he goes will you at least pray about it <laughs> yeah i don't make these things up yeah so I said, well, I'll resign from the search committee and I need to go home. Because I realized that's serious stuff. When all those people said that. So I went home and I said to Cynthia, listen to this. Well, she just, I had already said, this is your moment. Yeah, I remember a few of those conversations. Go back and lead that school. I'd been in the presidency of the school for three or four years, and Hendricks walks in one day, and he slams the door behind him. Hey, Swindoll. <laughs> I go, Dr. Hendricks. He goes, you've opened all the windows. I'll never forget it. It was so great. I, I got up from the chair, and I walked around, and I just hugged him. <laughs> Tell you a sweet little story. We're in chapel, and, and uh, one of our faculty members has written a commentary on Leviticus. It's about that thick. <laughs> he knows more about Leviticus than Moses, who, who wrote, <laughs> he wrote it. He wrote it. Well, when the publisher brings a leather-bound volume, usually they give you a leather-bound volume for the, you know, the, for your keepsake. Mm -hmm. Well, the students go, and I'm like, come on. So I stand up, yeah, and I applaud like this. And they stood up, and the faculty stood up. And now we're all standing ovation for mm -hmm. this wonderful professor. And I walk up to him. It's a true story. And I put my arms around him and pull his head toward me. And I said to him, I so admire you. And I love you for doing this great work. The applause is still going on. That afternoon, I got to, I wish I would have kept it. I'd love to read it. And he wrote, in all my adult life, I've never had another man tell me he loves me. This is a PhD from Harvard, this man. And you knew exactly how he felt. I did. Without the PhD from Harvard. <laughs> and he... To this day, it's just as close as he can be. And I think what I brought to school was just, it was just. Um, well, you brought laughter and life. Yeah, it, it was reality, I think. I took, I took out all the no parking 
or reserved parking. I told all the faculty, we're not going to reserve parking. We're not going to reserve parking. And one of them in the executive committee said to me, what about your parking? I said, take it out. That's an honorary question. Yeah. Yeah, I'll leave that And I think they kept telling, you kept telling everyone in the office, leave my door open. Yeah, I did. And no one had ever, no president had done that. Right. And I really like it open. I still do. You can go Mm -hmm. to the church, it's open. Anyway, I took all the the keep off the grass signs away. And I had the business manager say to me, they're going to walk on the grass. And I go, huh, (laughs) wonder what grass is for. And they were playing football on it and they were, they were having picnics on it and sitting there with their kids. It was lovely. And one day we had a ball game going and Lou Schneider, who has got a rocket arm, played for Penn State, shot a pass to a guy that went out and, and, and the pass went over him and it went through the men's room window and it landed on a guy on the stool who's reading his Hebrew in the bathroom. vocabulary words. <laughs> and he winds up with a football in his hand. And there's glass all over. Let's get the party yeah. started. <laughs> oh, no. My good old business manager said, okay, who's going to pay for the glass? It's glass. It's, it's funny. A school exists because there are students. Students don't exist because there's a faculty. We need students. And we love students. And we adjust our lives to students. They get the parking places. Yeah. If we get there a little early, we'll find one. If we don't, we walk like they used to have to walk. Mm-hmm. That's only fair. <laughs> I'm not trying to sound like Robin Hood or some big deal. I just think that's fair. So that's the kind of thing I was able to bring to the school. Right. It's nothing huge, but it's something different. It's freeing. Yeah, it is. And then while I'm there, uh, I start a church, of all things, and it becomes Stonebriar Community Church, which I didn't want to have a church. Here we go again. I didn't want that either. <laughs> I just wanted a Bible. I just wanted a Bible <laughs> class. You know, couldn't we just have a Bible class? And they all said, no, we want a church. And God wanted the church, so I better cooperate. So, you know, Colleen, this is the real story. Mm -hmm. This is who I really am. And people don't know it. They they read something I've written or they've seen something I've done or, or they're aware of, you know, this headquarters building where we're sitting for Inside for Living Ministries. And I'm as surprised as they are. Mm -hmm. And you know that's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But they don't. They they think it's all a part of my plan. And I never planned this. I never planned the church. I never planned all four of the kids. You know, we just (laughs) just had fun making them. And so there they came. And... uh, and here we are in our 80s, loving each other for 67 plus years. And I realize Cynthia has always loved me simply for who I am, which is the best way to be loved. Not because of what I do or whatever she loves me, because she loves me, you know? Yeah. I remember a story when you spoke at the seminary a couple years ago, and you had thrown up on the way there. You were sick. Oh. (laughs) And you had somehow not gotten it on whatever you were going to show up in. And then you spoke, and you you got back in the car, and you you threw up again. And just as you were driving off, your window was down, and someone said, Pastor Swindle, Swindle. And you stopped, and the man said, I, I, I won't take time, but I just want to know how I can be like you. <laughs> we wanted to say, well, it starts with throwing up. Right. You know how to throw up? We'll start there. But behind the scenes, Dad, is life, and it's hard. Yeah, it is. 
And it's daily. And if I may go back to our book here, you have to have hope. You can live a number of days without food. I understand about seven days without water. About, what, four minutes without air before damage. But you can't live but a few seconds without hope. So speak into that because the book, you you highlight those like Joseph. Um, you highlight David when he faced yeah. Goliath. So yeah. when we face giants, there some giants, such as neglect for some people who haven't worked through it, that's a giant that lives in their head. And you know what you forget is David himself is a forgotten child. And Joseph Jesse doesn't was. remember that he has a kid in the field. So Samuel says, is this all your sons? And he goes, oh, by golly, I got one more. And he's out with the sheep. Samuel goes, bring him in. Yeah. Uh, okay. Hey, David. So David walks in. Next thing you know, he's the oil running down the back of his neck. And he's hearing words like the next king. So when he goes to face the giant, He's not David the giant killer. He's David the sheep protector. Mm -hmm. And he's guarded them against the lion and the bear. And I can kill this uncircumcised Philistine. Mm -hmm. Bring him on. He's not doing it to be showing off. He just, that's what he does. He's a slinger. Mm -hmm. And he slings this rock and kills him. And guess what? You know, we'd all go down to Nordstrom looking for crowns after that, thinking it's time to be promoted. But he doesn't. He's back with the sheep. Next time you look for where David is, he's back with his dad's sheep. Yeah. Because that's his responsibility. But you're right. He he does this really for the glory of God. Is there not a cause? Yeah. Who does he think he is insulting the army of the living God? And then how about Job buries all 10 kids, body covered with boils. Wife says, curse God and die. Careful, don't beat up on her. She too has lost 10 children. Mm -hmm. So let, let's be careful. And then Job writes chapter 12 or chapter 23, verse 12. He knows the way that I take. He's covered with boils, lost his kids. Still sitting in the in the sitting garbage dump. heap. Yep, yep, the dump. Scratching his boils yep. glass. He knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held his steps. His web I kept and not declined. Neither have I gone back from the command of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Thanks, Job. No promise of ever being healed from the boils, but I esteem his word. So his hope comes from the truth of God's word. Yeah, and from God himself. He knows where I am. He knows where we all are. Yeah. And there are those listening right now who think, I'm all alone. You're never all alone. You feel all alone. Mm -hmm. I wasn't alone in Okinawa, though I didn't know anybody by name. Even before I met Bob, every mile I went across that ocean and unpacking my sea bag there, my God was with me. You had to sink at times. Oh, sure. And then go back to yeah, the work. Yeah, I did. I did. Of course, everybody does. Yeah, yeah, uh, and he doesn't kick you out of his family because you sink. No. Like, we don't kick our kids out when they sink. No. We sometimes put our arms around them, and they fight us, and we hold them close, even when they're fighting us, because we love them in spite of all this other stuff. The hope that we long for is sometimes distant, and it feels far away. 
I heard a story recently about a woman who set a goal of swimming across the San Francisco Bay. Speaking of back of San Francisco. And we've been there, turbulent, the un- awful, deadly yeah. water. Yeah. And it was fog. The fog had come in. And she finally said, I can't. I can't keep going. And they pulled her into the boat. And they were about five yards from the finish line. And I think about your history and you showing up at school and the drama teacher saying, you're going to win. You're going to be in the play. Yeah. You did say that. And I can hear it like it was yesterday. And working through stuttering and, and I'm sure bullying that came along with that. Yet the determination and the discipline I've never, ever heard at a funeral, well, I just want to remember him for his knowledge. I have heard. Yeah. I want to, he is remembered for his compassion. Yeah. For his love. And that he honored and walked with God. Yeah. I love that verse in Deuteronomy because it's the steps. You're not defined by these things. Right. But they are all adding up. And that's one of the things that we talk about a lot in caregiving and even our health. Right. All the way these 40 years. You you can say that so quickly. 40 years in the wilderness. God's at work. And it feels like forever. And you think, I can't make it. I can't make it, but you do. And that's another thing. In raising um, John, there have been so many setbacks. Um, But the example of never becoming proud. Oh, yeah. Um, Oh, I hear all the time about Austin. He's amazing. And he is amazing. He's an amazing son. Yeah. And the same with Ashley. But there have been times when my heart has been heavy. And I say to the person, speaking of Ashley and Austin, it is because of Jesus that they are where they are. And good grandparents who didn't give up on them when everyone else did. I'm so thankful, Dad, you've never gotten proud. (laughs) No. It it never dawned on me to to do that. Will Will you just close in prayer? Sure. Because I know we can hear these stories, and there are those sitting in a basement wondering... Will I ever get out of the bed? Um, some guys just lost his job oh, yeah. and can't pay rent. But God is with us. As we wrap up, why don't we pray? Lord, we are grateful that you do know the way that we take. You never learn that way. You know it. You knew it would be like it is today, and you knew that in eternity past. You're always on our side. No one could love us more than you love us. No one could have more compassion for us or have our good at heart more than you do. So grateful. Thank you for not giving up on us, even when we give up on ourselves or when others give up on us. Thank you for seeing when people really have it and don't realize they've got it. And you bring along someone who points it out, puts an arm around them and says, let me help you to develop this. Let me help you. Recover. Let me help you get through this. You even know those people 
and appoint them for those strategic moments when we need them the most. I pray for those that are at the bottom and life is dark and the shades are drawn and the doors are locked and the hope seems gone forever. I pray that you will invade that room and you who represents light would bring light in the darkness and open the windows, unlock the doors, and reveal a reason to go on and the purpose for hoping again to those who feel they'll never, ever go there. Remind us all of your great ability to forgive, to understand, to love us with an infinite amount of love, and never remind us where we blew it, where we were wrong, where we did the same thing over and over again. You always point us to the horizon of hope. You even put a rainbow in the sky, saying there'll never again be a flood over the whole earth. When you see that rainbow, you have hope. So I pray for those who feel flooded by misfortune. Remind us of David's words. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He lifted me up from a horrible pit and put my feet on a rock and established my goings. Put a new song in my mouth, even praise to my God. Many will see it in fear and trust in the Lord. Thank you, Father, for this day and for helping me get through this story. Thank you for my original family and all of its struggles and difficulties that my mother never aborted me, that she bore me. And though my mom and dad really didn't know me and who I was, they cared for me. They fed me. They clothed me. They provided shelter for me. Thank you for that. And today I honor them for a brother and sister who did so well in life and now they're with you. Thank you for the reminder of their lives. Finally, thank you, Father, for my wife, Cynthia, who has loved me all her life. And for our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, such gifts, such hope they bring to us in this stage of our lives. We rest in you, Father, our shield and our defender. Through Christ, we pray, amen. Enjoyed today's podcast? We'd love to hear how you've been encouraged in our website comments and our podcast reviews. If Reframing Ministries has been helpful in your life walk, we'd be honored to have you partner with us in prayer and in financial support. We operate entirely and only on your generous gifts and donations. You can partner with us at reframingministries.com slash give. The Reframing Ministries podcast is a production of Insight for Living Ministries.